This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies Podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Ms. Kiana Fitzgerald, who is a graduate of Texas State University, where she earned both her bachelor's degree in print journalism and her master's in new media and mass communication, both of which were earned with with summa cum laude honors. She has written viral cover stories for Paper Magazine, New York's Magazine, The Cut, and her work has been printed in The Rolling Stone, Texas Monthly, Stranger's Guide, um, Bitch Magazine as well. She has also produced highly circulated pieces for NPR, Night Magazine, Billboard, Vox, the Fader, Brooklyn Magazine, to just name a few. She has also, on top of her writing, she's also served as a mental health advocate on TikTok, where she has built a community of 20,000 plus supporters. Today, we are discussing her book, Ode to Hip Hop, 50 Albums That Define 50 Years of Trailblazing Music. Thank you for joining me today, Ms. Fitzgerald. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Absolutely, yes. So Ode to Hip Hop is really um, a marker in time, I would say, of where we are in terms of hip hop's history. It comes, you know, on the 50th year of the genre. And I really tried to comb through as many albums as I had access to. And even the ones that I didn't, I tried to find those too and just listen to as many albums as I could to um, to both revisit and to familiarize myself with things that have really uh, transformed uh, the genre and the culture that surrounds it. So yeah, I, um, I just picked 50 albums that I felt were most representative of hip hop. And, you know, it's a very subjective list. Um, everybody has their own opinion, but I believe that this 50, this list of 50 albums is pretty pretty on point when we think about, um, you know, the, the acts and the artists and the albums that have shaped 
uh, hip hop's culture. I agree. Your list was spot on, um, and I agree. It has it has definitely shaped both the music and the culture that surrounds it. And as I was looking at the book, I could not help but admire the cover of the book and the artistry that goes along with it. And it was done by Yay Abe. Can you speak a little bit about that and how Abe was chosen for the project? Yes, definitely. So um, early on, when I first started to kind of, you know, put this book together, I was, you know, well, actually, from the very beginning, I was told this is going to be a gift kind of book. This is a keepsake. This is something that people, uh, one of those situations where you look at the cover and you want to buy the book and you judge the book by the cover. So um, early on, I was told that, you know, that would be a very important part of this book, in addition to the words themselves. And I um, was given an, uh, a set of four artists who were all phenomenal, <clears throat> excuse me, four artists who were all phenomenal. And they gave me the option to, to pick the one that I felt was most representative of the kind of book that I wanted to have. And Ye Abe was by and far the first choice. He's um, a South African artist and he's done so many incredible works in collaborations and murals and so many things, clothing, like he's done it all. And this is his first book as well. So um, yeah, it was really exciting to be able to, to have a hands-on opportunity to pick the artist who was going to bring this book to life. And he did. I mean, it visually, it is stunning. Um, now, can you share a little bit about how the idea for the book came about? Yes, definitely. Um, this is one of those kind of, I feel like my career and my trajectory um, as a writer is very unconventional. And this is yet another example of that. So um, I, in February of 2022, I received an email out of nowhere from my eventual editor, Ada, Ada Z, I call her. Uh, she um, was able to reach out to me and kind of of her own volition be like, hey, I think that you have a very strong writing voice and I have this book idea. Would you be interested in talking about it? Just like, you know, just a quick chat. And I was like, sure. So um, of course, this is one of those things where you get an email and you're like, is this real? Or how far is this really going to go? So we immediately, I want to say almost the next, either that day or the next day, we got on a video chat and we were just chopping it up, just talking about our favorite acts and, you know, what I could potentially see this book becoming. And I think pretty immediately we knew that we were going to be working together. So, yeah, it was super exciting to just have that initial conversation with her. But this is all Ada's idea. She's the one who reached out to me and I will forever be grateful to her for that. I am forever, forever grateful to her as well, as I know many readers are as well, <laughs> because this is a phenomenal book, I have to say. Thank now, you. this book is also personal. So how, in what ways is it personal for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the chapters about the albums themselves are not as personal as they could be. Um, I wanted to really keep this about the experiences of the artists and the ways that they brought their own works to life. Um, but the personal elements that I did put in um, really kind of start with the introduction where I won't spoil too much, but I just kind of talk about my own mental health struggles and how hip hop was really there for me in some of my most arduous times. So I was able to um, involve my myself in that respect, in the introduction, 
And then, of course, in the conclusion and the acknowledgments, I was able to put myself very much into those sections. But as far as the chapters, I, of course, I have my opinion. You know, I have um, my perspective on what I think hip hop is and what these albums really represent. But I do think it was more of the the opening and the closing of the book that I was able to be very personal. I agree. Now, in terms of the selection process, which mm. I can only imagine <laughs> what you went through to do this. Yeah. How, how, what was the selection process? Did you kind of like set it up by themes? Um, were there particular ideas that you had in mind that you wanted to cover um, mm. when you set out with your editor? Yeah. So um, shout out to Ada, Ada again. She gave me free reign to do this exactly how I wanted to do it. And, you know, I've never written a book before. I've never written a book about hip hop before. So I was like, let me just think about like what makes sense in terms of like chronology and things like that. So I started um, from the very beginning and I made a super spreadsheet the biggest spreadsheet I've ever made in my life. And I just started listing um, all of the albums that I could find, you know, through my research, through, you know, traditional Google outlets and stuff like that, or what have you. I just started listing as many albums as I could find. And the ones that I couldn't immediately find, I did circle back and include. So I just made this master list of every album that had come out since the very beginning of hip hop's creation. So I just went through and listed everything. And then I started listening and listening and listening and listening. And so I, um, you know, I had a limited amount of time to work on this book. Um, I was, you know, emailed by Ada in February of 2022 when I turned in my first manuscript in the first week of July of last year, 2022. So it was a very quick process, but I listened. You, you can ask my sister whom I live with. Um, I was listening to, to hip hop nonstop for weeks and months at on end. And it was a, an amazing experience. You know, some of these albums I wasn't as familiar with as I thought. Some of these albums were like familiar friends. Um, you know, it was really interesting to just be able to sift through so much history. And yeah, so I just listened my little heart out. And um, once I started to kind of get a grip on okay, which albums really represent these uh, specific eras or these specific years that are very, very instrumental in the, the trajectory of hip hop. Um, yeah, once I was able to start whittling that down, I think it became much easier. But yeah, I would say it was definitely a daunting task to have all this, you know, historical information in front of me, all of this um, beautiful art in front of me and having to decide what stays and what goes. I can't even imagine making those choices that you had to make. <laughs> yeah. How difficult was that selection process to say, okay, I'm going to whittle this down to 50. Yeah. Uh, how challenging was that? It was, it was both amazing and horrifying at the same time. <laughs> um, just because I wanted to be as inclusive as I could be, but I also recognized that not every artist and not every album was going to make the cut. So it was, it was a lot like pulling teeth. Um, that was a very, very tense time for me just because I wanted to get it right. And I wanted to have a respectable list that people may have their, you know, they may have their disagreements, but they understand at the end of the day why I made the decisions that I made. So, yeah, it was um, it was a very, very difficult process. But I think 
I mean, I survived it and I'm proud to say that, <laughs> um, especially as someone um, who lives with bipolar type one, which I talk about in the introduction of this book. Um, you know, stress is a big trigger for me to have episodes. And I was so worried that I was going to fall into an episode during the, the making of this book, but I didn't. And I'm so proud to say that. I'm so happy that I was able to make it through and, um, you know, come out with this beautiful product. I congratulate you on being able to, you know, stay strong during what is a daunting task in and of itself. Just going mm-hmm. through a hundred would be a daunting task for me, but you went through way more than that. So, and to get that to 50, I, my hats are off to you right now uh, <laughs> for you. being able to do that. That's all I can say. Um, now, what do you consider? And I want to flip it back a little bit here now, the origins of hip hop. Mm-hmm. Where do you see it all beginning? Yeah, so there was a a fateful day that has kind of been seen as the birthday of hip-hop. August 11th, 1973, in the Bronx, New York, on 1520 Sedgwick Avenue, um, a back-to-school jam was held in this location um, by um, a DJ named Cool Herc. It was actually his sister's um, party that she was trying to, you know, raise money for clothes to go back to school, I believe. And um, yeah, it became this this stuff of legend where, you know, it was only a space that held about 40 to 50 people. But nowadays, everybody likes to see that they were there at that time. But it was really a small space. And DJ Cool Herc was just spinning underground funk records by um, James Brown and other uh, funk artists. And, um, you know, he was able to create what is now known as the break, which is where, you know, he spends two copies of the same record at the same time. And he cuts from one break to the next break. So it's just this percussive stretched out moment, which is where the, you know, break dancers, the B-boys and the B-girls would get down like they never had before. So um, in his, you know, moment of making this, this um, situation where these break dancers could really just have a good time this is where hip hop was really birthed out of. And of course, you know, there was a lot going on in the Bronx at the time, the South Bronx specifically. Um, there were, you know, city officials had cut funding for programs and services that would have been very beneficial to people who needed it. There were, you know, employment opportunities weren't there. There were just a lot of things that were happening in this specific area. And out of that was born hip hop, which is, you know, this incredible uh, creation of levity that really was needed for that area and, and needed now for, for the whole world. I agree with that. And it's so interesting. It started, you know, as this underground art form, but now where it is in 2023, it has involved, it has evolved into so much more, yeah. uh, as to where we are today, but when do you kind of consider hip hop going into the mainstream? When do you mm-hmm. kind of see that happening? Yeah, I would say um, definitely in the, I would say the mid eighties when we have, you know, like run DMC, um, those kinds of acts who are, who are seen as um, some of the bastions of hip hop today. I would say when they started to kind of crop up, crop up and be included on media programs like MTV um, you know, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, Run DMC's Rockbox was the first hip hop video to be played on MTV. So I would say around that time is when it started to become a bit more mainstream. 
I agree. You know, it's one of those things where you think about, you know, Run DMC, where it all began and, you know, on M like MTV, one of the first videos. And now, you know, there's just so much that is out there mm -hmm. uh, that is around everywhere. Now, let's talk a little bit about regionality and hip hop, mm -hmm. because those two also go hand in hand. So why would you think that hip hop began in regions such as New York, Los Angeles? Yeah, I would say um, the, as I mentioned earlier, there were just, um, it was just a moment of significant change. And there was a need for some kind of art form or some kind of creative outlet for people to express what they were going through, whether it be, um, you know, poverty or police brutality, they were um, in need of some way to express what they were going through to the world. And of course, you know, we see the bicoastal element still very prevalent today of New York versus LA or, you know, um, the East Coast versus the West Coast or what have you. Um, it's still very present today, but I would say it probably started on those coasts because, you know, those, those were the areas where, you know, it was um, a lot of, I would say a lot of activity. Like, you know, I'm from the South, I'm from Texas and things are very slow down here, you know, compared to like the East Coast where I lived for a fair amount of time. So, you know, things are much slower. People are um, not as quick to, um, you know, talk about certain issues, especially when it comes to like racism and things like that. So I think it was a lot of, you know, just freedom on those coasts to be able to speak to issues that were that were plaguing their communities. I agree. I definitely agree with that. And as a fellow Southerner as well, we have to get into hip hop in the South. Yes. Uh, and its birth, which was, you know, it's so interesting. You do have that East Coast, West Coast, you know, New York, LA vibe. But there's also, you know, the South, they have produced some phenomenal hip hop artists as well. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the origins in the South? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Southern hip hop artists have always been active, but I would say it was especially um, in the 90s when the South was really able to rise up and start speaking about their own experiences. And specifically, I want to talk about Outkast and um, the, the moment that things kind of shifted for Southern artists. Um, there was an award show called the Source Awards um, in 1995 that Outkast won Best New Artist at. And at this time, you know, we're talking about, you know, East Coast, West Coast um, situations. There was a big rivalry between the East Coast and the West Coast at this time. So it was already a very contentious environment. And then Outkast, the Southern, you know, Georgia group from Atlanta, um, you know, wins this award and there are boos and jeers. And then, you know, Andre 3000, who's half of Outkast alongside Big Boy, um, he gets up on the stage and he's like, you know, the South has something to say. The South got something to say. That's all I got to say. And um, it was like, it was not met with the, the, like the impact of the crowd. Like the crowd didn't really have much of a, a reaction to it, but the reverberations of that moment have really affected the way that Southern artists are able to create. So I would say that moment specifically was, um, a very, very big catalyst, a very um, important moment in Southern hip hop history. 
And from then, I feel like it's just been like, everybody's got an opportunity now, um, especially, you know, as the internet came into play and, you know, we saw people like Soldier Boy become popular off of, you know, MySpace and, you know, these other um, online platforms. There are so many different ways for a Southern artists to insert themselves into the conversation now. I agree. There is definitely, you have more Southern artists, thanks to, you know, this new digital world in which mm-hmm. we live that allows them access, which before it wasn't quite as there. Yeah. Uh, but Source Awards, I, you know, there's a vague recollection in my mind of that mm-hmm. uh, moment that's kind of coming back to me now as you were saying that, because I was thinking about, yeah, it was there was that challenge of where does the South fit into this narrative? Mm -hmm. Um, But after that, now, you know, they are very prominent as well. They are a major force um, in hip hop that we have going on. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, it's, as you think about 50 years of hip hop, the styles and so much has changed because if you think about hip hop early on 1980s to where we are today, the music, everything is so different. But as you say, you know, early on, you're confronting a lot of issues that mm-hmm. were happening. And would you say that like 1980s, you were definitely, would you consider the 1980s, that period, you're honing in on some of the issues that were most definitely prevalent in the African-American community that were facing them during that time? Definitely, yes. Um, I would say that, the 1980s were like this perfect, um, you know, breeding ground of sorts for hip hop to to take form and take flight. Um, you know, they I'm thinking about like um, uh, like an Eric B and Rakim, you know, of rapping about and creating music about um, the issues that they were facing. And, you know, like even going back to Curtis Blow in 1980, his self-titled album. Um, you know, he was rapping about, uh, I think there's a song called called Hard Times, which is like very socially conscious and it would end up being covered by Run DMC just a few years later. But yeah, it was, um, the 80s were definitely a time for artists to make known their issues and make, uh, make create awareness around the things that they were going through. And the situations that were putting them in a bind or the situations that were making them happy or anything like, I think that the 80s were just this very instrumental time where artists were able to just kind of speak about their capabilities as creators, but also talk about the things that they were going through in a very serious way if it called for it. I'm thinking about the message, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, like that's a big, you know, one of the most important songs in hip hop history. And they're speaking right. about the things that they were going through, the, the things that they were seeing in their environment. So I think it's always been that kind of, uh, you know, present um, acknowledgement. And it still is, even today, in so many ways, as we are here in 2023. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a shift some in the 1990s. How do you see kind of like hip hop? the conceptualizations during that time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that hip hop in the 90s became much more, and this is not a slight to the 80s, but I think it became much more creative. Um, I think the 80s were more about like, these are the fundamentals. These are the things that we know to be true about hip hop. 
this is where we're going to stand and this is how we're going to create based on the things that we see within our purview. And in the 90s, I would say, you know, with the expansion to the South, with the expansion to other regions that were underrepresented and other people who were underrepresented, I feel as though the 90s became this very, very open space for people to create and to just play around with different sounds, different um, concepts. I'm thinking about, you know, Missy Elliott uh, in 1997, she came out with um, Super Duper Fly. I'm thinking about Three Six Mafia, who came out with Mystic Styles in 1995. Um, you know, these artists didn't sound anything like, you know, a Curtis Blow or a Run DMC. They sounded completely separate. And I feel like that's why the 90s were such, uh, they the 90s in my book, Ode to Hip Hop, are very, very, um, well represented, I would say, because there was so much going on during that time. So it's very meaty in the 90s. And I, I'm glad that I was able to kind of have some freedom to put like three albums from 93 or four albums from 94 into this book, um, because those were really important years. And just, you know, seeing like how, how much impact those kinds of albums in that specific era had on the, the next iteration of hip hop. I thought was really important to display. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I agree because I can remember there was, I remember when Missy Elliott's um, Super Duper Fly came out and I, you had never heard that sound before. Mm-hmm. It was something so unique, so distinctive mm-hmm. that it was completely off the charts. Yeah. And it became really, really, it was like, once you listened to it, it was like, you just could not not listen to it exactly um, it's it's addictive <laughs> it is it really is and it's you know it was during that time that you're right there they were beginning a new iteration of hip-hop and during that period that was mind-blowing and so what do you see kind of after the 1990s you know as we mm. go into the 2000 and of course you know now we're in 2023 how do you see it shaping up early on and where are we today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 2000s. Wow. I feel like this is uh, my bread and butter because, you know, I um, I was born in 89. So I was just kind of starting to find myself in the 2000s as a young adult and finding the things that I liked and the things that I didn't like and all that. So, yeah, the 2000s were so much fun. <laughs> um, you know, we had we had the, the snap era, the crunk era. You know, we had, um, you know, Nicki Minaj came into the fold. Lil Wayne was on a tear in 2007 and on. So there were so many things that were happening at the same time. And there was also this new um, kind of way to find and access artists in their work. Um, this This thing called the blog era, the blog rap era. And that was um, this moment when the internet became very, very prevalent, you know, in the ways that we were accessing and sharing music. So for uh, for me, I remember um, just having this very, very old, beat up old computer 
and downloading songs and trying to like learn them as quickly as I could. And, you know, it was just like this very fun, fast paced element to the creative process of, you know, discovering and falling in love with these hip hop artists and their songs. So the 2000s, I would say are, you know, they were just fun. They, it was like, it was a mixed bag of everything. And um, yeah, now I feel like we're, we're in a different space because, you know, while we had access to the internet in the early 2000s and beyond, um, we didn't have like social media really. And I feel like social media now has played a big, big role in how we perceive hip hop, especially a platform like TikTok, which is um, just a whole different animal in terms of the, the ability that people have to propel themselves forward, propel themselves onto the charts even through a 30 second clip or a 15 second clip on TikTok. I'm thinking about Ice Spice, you know, I'm thinking about Nardo Wick um, and other artists who have really, um, what's her name, Maya the Dawn, um, you know, all these artists who are able to really utilize these platforms and say, this is who I want to be as an artist. Let me push it out to the world and see what happens. So yeah, I feel like social media has definitely had a big, big impact on how we um, see hip hop and how we um, you know, consume it. I agree. Social media, it's, you know, and it's hard as I sit here right now, as I'm speaking with you to think about a world that is pre-social media, Mm -hmm. because it's just, it's so much in everything that it's just hard to conceptualize the world before it actually was there. But, you know, as we both know, there was, and it was so, and it was so different, you know, and so, but as you say now, you know, artists, they are able to propel themselves and get their own voice out now. Um, And that is something that social media helps them to do. Mm -hmm. Now, in the book, you noted that some of the albums are controversial. Um, Can you speak a little bit about how hip hop in itself has been deemed controversial. Mm. Yeah, I would say that almost from the very beginning, you know, I'm thinking about two live crew um, coming out with as nasty as they want to be in the late eighties. Yeah. Hip hop has always been (laughs) something that people um, wanted to take to task and wanted to um, kind of put in a box and say, you can be this, but you can't be that. And if you're that, then you're not allowed to play in our area or you're not allowed to, you know, be presented to our children or to our community or our environment. So yeah, hip hop has always been seen as this controversial product. And, you know, there, there are some things that I'm like, okay, that's a fair point. Like for example, the, the parental advisory sticker kind of coming to life in part because of two live crew. And then also I'm thinking about you know, like uh, Lil' Kim, her hardcore album. Um, that's a very explicit album, but it, it did so much for hip-hop and it, it did so much for women, specifically within hip-hop and women who are hip-hop consumers. There are always going to be, you know, people who, who see hip-hop as controversial or who, who see it as something that needs to be toned down or tamped down or something of that nature. And you know, I, I understand some of it, but for the most part, I'm just like, this is a form of creative expression. This is a lifestyle that somebody is living out there and somebody can relate to out there. And even just speaking about that, I'm thinking about like Sexy Red and how so many people have really um, thrown her into this gauntlet of a conversation because they don't understand her or they don't understand her way of life. 
but I know so many sexy reds and I, I know there are so many more out there who feel that, like they're finally being represented. And, you know, just because they're controversial doesn't mean them, that they're any less worthy of being appreciated or interrogated or explored or anything like that. I agree with that assessment wholeheartedly. There's just, there's been always this need to, as you say, box hip hop in, in so Mm -hmm. many ways and stick a label on it. Mm -hmm. What is acceptable versus what is not acceptable. And I was around for those two live crew as nasty (laughs) as you want to be. And when those parental advisory labels came out, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's mind boggling now as I sit here in 2023, <laughs> um, when you think about it, uh, what they were and what they were not. And, you know, it kind of brings me to the next question. It's like how you can see how much change has happened because you did have two live crew. And of course they were wanted to be banned in so many places Mm -hmm. um, based off of as nasty as you want to be yet you know here we are and you have cardi b and megan the stallions wop it's being Mm -hmm. played on radios worldwide Mm -hmm. um what do you think has changed man i think the world changed you know i think um i think we have so much access to pretty much anything we could ever want to know about anything we could want to um, explore or just figure out like a little bit more about the mechanics of how something works. We just have instant, immediate and unlimited access to, to almost anything that, you know, that is out there to be learned about. And I think that has affected the way that we, um, the way that we consume music, especially hip hop. I think that we are in this place where, you know, we've heard, you know, the two live crews, we've heard, um, you know, all the artists in between that time and now, you know, with Cardi and Megan um, coming out with like WAP and Bongos now, um, you know, we, we've we heard so much in that interim time that it's like, well, this is a natural progression, you know, especially as more women have been given agency and um, autonomy to be able to do and speak about what they want to do and speak about. I think it was just um, uh, an eventual thing that was already on its way to happening. But with, you know, things like the Internet, things like social media um, and just all other kinds of media, you know, film, TV shows and things of that nature, video games, like all things, all the things that we um, consume today have evolved. And I don't think hip hop is any different. I agree. I definitely agree with that. And one of the things, you know, in your book, it's, It was so great to see because, you know, men have dominated hip hop Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate it. Like all of the female hip hop artists that you put in the book from the origins all the way through contemporary times. So I wanted to ask you how important was that? Because it was so great, you know, to see little Kim, Missy, the brat. Yeah. It was like a Nicki Minaj, Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion. It was so great seeing that and having yes. that representation. And even then taking it all the way back, you know, to Salt and Pepper, um, Queen Latifah, MC Light. It was so great to see that in your mm-hmm. book. Thank you. Yeah, it was so important for me to to really be able to um, involve um, artists who are not traditionally championed and who are not always given the 
the upliftment and the, you know, the exaltation that they deserve. I feel that, um, well, again, I have to shout out Ada, my editor. She was um, phenomenal throughout the whole process, but especially at the beginning when I was just trying to, you know, piece this, this book together, she was like, you know, we don't have to be rigid and like stick, you know, to one, one album per year. Because when I started this process initially, I had one album per year. I was like, okay, this is, we're going to do 50 albums back to back to back to back. And she was like, we don't have to do that. So once I had that flexibility and that freedom, that's when I was able to say, okay, like I'm going to go all out in being as inclusive and as representative as I can be. And yeah, I just, I just really thank Ada for giving me that, that flexibility and that freedom because otherwise this book could have just been, you know, 48 men and Lil Kim and, you know, Nicki Minaj, you know, and I am just really glad that it didn't turn out like that because that's not representative of hip hop itself. Hip hop is so much more than, you know, um, a bunch of straight men, you know, especially today, it's become so much bigger and brighter and better than, um, than what most people think it is, which is like this, this male dominated art form that, you know, is about putting women down constantly and this, that, and the third, like it can be that. And sometimes it is that, but that's not all there is to it. That is very, very true. And I want to, you know, kind of follow up on that, you know, this idea of what hip hop is today, you know, and one of the artists that brings to mind is Little Nas X, mm-hmm. you know, and his rise that has just really, you know, gone off the charts. Where do you see him, you know, in this dynamic? Yeah, I think he is, um, he's an artist that was kind of birthed from all of the changes that hip hop has gone through over the years. Um, especially, you know, the, the issues that hip hop has with just anybody who isn't a a straight man, um, you know, like the, the, the issues that are within hip hop that have to do with misogynoir and homophobia and queerphobia, um, more broadly, like all of these issues have plagued the genre from the beginning. And as we've come across the years and, you know, really, um, you know, just gone through, the, the past decades of hip hop, I feel that, you know, an artist like Lil Nas X is only possible because of all the transformation that has taken place. Um, you know, he's, he's Gen Z, so he's probably half the age of hip hop. And that's incredibly exciting to me that he is able to, you know, take, take control of his own narrative and be, um, you know, this champion for the under, the underdogs, the unheard, the underrepresented, people who have always been kind of relegated to the sidelines or not involved at all in hip hop conversations. Um, I feel like he's able to exist and create and just present himself to the world in the way that he is because of all the, the ways that hip hop has morphed and evolved and transformed over time. I most definitely agree on that. Now, as you were writing the book, um, was there anything that you learned about hip hop? Mm, I mean, on that note, um, I learned that hip hop, especially in the 90s and 2000s, was incredibly homophobic. Um, You know, unfortunately, the F word was in every other artist's album um, that I listened to, you know, just kind of, you know, going through the process of listening. And I was like, wow, this is pretty wild. And I remembered it, you know, as a kid, I remember listening to some of these albums and being like, not thinking 
a second thought about it because it was so prevalent. But now listening back, I'm like, whoa, that was a big issue. So that's something that I learned. Um, And aside from that, I just, I don't know, I feel like I learned a lot about the different ways that regions could represent themselves. Um, You know, I'm thinking about like the West Coast and how, you know, or even, um, yeah, thinking about the West Coast, but also the East Coast and how, you know, you had um, like a Wu-Tang Clan come out and then you have um, like a De La Soul come out around the same or a bit earlier and how they were just so two starkly separate kinds of sounds. But, um, you know, it was just incredible to hear the evolution of the sound of hip hop and how it could represent itself in different ways, um, even within the same state or the same region. Now, is there anything that you did not learn as you were <laughs> anything that you really did yet you knew was kind of there that you just really said, OK, I already knew that one. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I feel like um, a lot of this I, I already knew. But um, yeah, what? I don't know. That's a good question. Anything I didn't learn. Um, I guess I didn't learn that um, that hip hop is, you know, I don't want to say it's a it's a man's game, but it, it just it became very apparent to me. And then I was like, I already knew this. But, you know, and just understanding the way that men have been able to wield their power and their control, you know, going not even just the artists, but the, the label heads and the, the gatekeepers and the quote unquote tastemakers, like the people who have a lot of influence in this area um, really impacted the way that hip hop unfolded. And, you know, even today I'm thinking about like a Joe Budden or somebody like that who um, used to be a hip hop artist, but is now a podcaster and how, you know, he he can say, um, you know, one thing and then it goes viral and then it may not be true, but the world believes it and they just ran with it anyway. Like that kind of thing is something that became very apparent to me as I was doing research for sure. Oh, wow. That. I can definitely see that happening. That mm-hmm. uh, fortunately is in uh, most professions. I hate to say, even though in 2023 it's still that way. Yeah, we still have a long way to go. And so that I want to ask you, what do you want to see from hip hop in the next 50 years? Mm. In the next 50 years, I would absolutely. Ooh, excuse me. In the next 50 years, I would absolutely love to see um, much more inclusivity. I would love to see more artists who come from different backgrounds, who come from different lifestyles, who have different experiences with like, you know, ableism or, you know, uh, racism or things that, you know, whatever the situation may be, people who have different perspectives in the norm. That's what I want to see. I don't want, um, I don't want the same things to be rehashed over and over again. I don't want to hear about drugs and uh, violence and et cetera, et cetera, in every single song that comes on the rap caviar playlist on Spotify. Um, You know, I really prefer to learn new things. I want to learn new ways of life. I feel like that's what we're all here for, you know, is to to experience life and to share our experiences with each other and see how they match up and they don't. And I really would love to see and hear many more experiences, you know, from, from queer artists, from women artists, from, you know, people who just live life in ways that are not traditionally represented in the genre. That is a masterful wish list, one that yeah. I hope can come true. I really do. And you know what? You know, here we are in 2023. 
from hip hop's origins till now, who knows? It may actually be possible. Yeah. You know, <laughs> people are evolving, things are changing, so your wish list may actually come true. So I want to ask you, what do you want readers to take away from the book? Yes, absolutely. Love this question. Um, I really want readers to walk away um, after even reading one chapter or two chapters or the whole book from front to back in one sitting. I would love for readers to just be like, wow, I learned something and or I remembered something. Um, I want people to I want people to really experience this book and not just read it. I want them to feel it. I want them to you know, uh, be prompted to go and listen to an album or a song or an artist that they haven't revisited in a while or somebody that they've never heard of. Um, you know, I want them to be able to just go through this book. It doesn't have to be, you know, chapter by chapter in order, um, whatever way makes sense to you. I just encourage people to, to just have a good time and to have fun because hip hop at its core is a fun thing. You know, it is something that came from park jams and, back to school parties and things like that. Like hip hop in its foundation is meant to be something to be celebrated and something to be enjoyed. So that's what I would hope people take away from this. Kiana Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I had such a great time. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Ode to Hip Hop. You will not regret it. I will say, you know, for many of us, music is kind of like a soundtrack of our lives. And as um, Ms. Fitzgerald just mentioned, if you read through a chapter and then you go and you listen to the music, it there's so much emotion that can come from that. And there is so much meticulous work that she has done in this book. Just being able to celebrate 50 years of a genre that was supposed to be a fad, but that has now transformed African-American culture, American culture, and hip hop is worldwide. Just to be able to get a sense of that, looking at 50 albums that are phenomenal, I will say, I urge you and implore you to go out and pick up a copy of this book. And I will also say that this is also one of those things, as we spoke about earlier, the artistry is magnificent in it. And it is a book that you can give someone. So listeners, please go out and pick up a copy of this book. It is on Amazon. It is at most booksellers. You will not regret it. Thank you so much.